top five plants you like using in a garden? Uh, let's let's go with my probably number one favorite would be nomadic cowbirds and poking the puffballs. I like turtles. And lightsaber frog calls. Fresh steamy scat filled with persimmon seeds. This is Nicole from the Great Plains Nature Center, and you're listening to That's My Favorite, the podcast where we geek out with naturalists. Today, we will be talking a little bit about native gardens, prairie restoration, and kind of everything in between. I have with me today Brad Gurr from the Dick Arboretum, that's D-Y-C-K Arboretum in Heston, Kansas, and we're just going to geek out for a little while, and it's going to be a lot of fun. If you want to go ahead and kind of just give a brief introduction of yourself and then of Dick Arboretum, we'll go ahead and get started. Yeah. My name is Brad Gore, and I am the education coordinator at Dick Arboretum of the Plains. We are a public garden slash nursery ecological restoration center in Heston, Kansas, and we have been in place for about 39 years now. We'll be 39 years old in October. Harold and Evie Dick started this Arboretum as a way of giving back to the community. They were inspired by Bartlett Arboretum that was uh, certainly an established uh, destination place uh, when they were uh, enjoying getting outdoors and, and seeing elements of, of nature and native plants, and they wanted to do something like that in Heston, Kansas. So they took what was an agricultural field, and they started doing some contouring. They dug a pond. They uh, started putting uh, beds of uh, native and adaptable plants that uh, can help tell the story of Kansas, and they were uh, successful in doing that, and that was 39 years ago. And uh, we've been trying to carry on their legacy and their mission ever since. And that mission is to cultivate transformative relationships between people and the land. So with all of our events and our activities and all the fundraisers that we do, we're trying to honor that legacy and that mission that Harold and Evie put in place. Awesome. Yeah. I love your guys' mission statement. I think it's just so good. Because, <laughs> um, you know, the Great Plains Nature Center, we have, you know, to inspire stewardship and just, it's a really good statement as well. But I just really love yours. It's it's just really, really good. <laughs> well, thank you. And it was inspired, you know, we went through a mission statement redo um, and a couple of years back. And we had a good one before, but it was a bit narrow in focus in looking at just utilizing native and adaptable plants and appreciating and, and using those in our landscapes. And so it was good for certain elements when it comes to native landscaping, of course, but we felt like we had a lot more to offer and a lot more to provide to the community. And we needed a mission statement that had adapted with the times and we were thinking a lot about Aldo Leopold and the land ethic and how that interconnection between people and the land is so important. And uh, so it really helped guide us in that process of thinking about a newer, more succinct, and 
more relevant mission statement to lots of the different activities we do here at Dick Arboretum. Yeah, because you guys, you guys do a lot of education and stuff like that as well, in addition to the plant sales that a lot of people know you for, right? That is true. And we've also incorporated elements of uh, the arts and recreation and many different ages of, of educational outreach. And we do feel like then this, this mission statement better encompassed a lot of those different activities. Awesome. Yeah, I agree. Um, but we're not talking about that today. Today we're okay. just kind of focusing on native plants. So we're going to go back, I guess, to Dick Arboretum's roots. Um, it's one of my favorite topics. I know you like talking about it. Um, <laughs> so I definitely, I kind of want to pick your brain a little bit, um, and just kind of chat about, you know, why use native plants? Uh, is it easier than traditional gardening? Is it harder? What are some of the pros and cons and things like that? Um, so I guess we'll start out with first off, you know, why why go native? Why plant native plants? Yeah, I was I was forced to think about that, and it's not like I was forced to think about it. I <laughs> I I thought about it in the last couple of days with the the fiftieth anniversary of Earth Day and had had thought about what what is earth day and why is it important and it quickly came to you know just looking at some of the history uh, back in the the late 60s and and why that was developed and it was in a response to protecting natural resources and in in a mode of conservation and stewardship and thinking about air and water and biological diversity and a response by our society, you know, in the U.S., and, and it's become a, a worldwide celebrated event, Earth Day, on April 22nd is to, you know, a response to take action and do what we can through the political system, through education, and so forth, and, and a quick response in 1970 and 1972 and 1973 for the, you know, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and the Endangered Species Act. And it was it was interesting to me as I was thinking about those advances in conservation that at the heart of each one of those is a healthy ecosystem. And at the base of that ecosystem are the plants, the the producers in that uh, those those trophic levels, those you know, those levels of consumption. You know, the sun drives the plants that produce the energy on our earth and Everything runs from there with the, the transfer of energy to the, you know, the first trophic level of the, the insects. And then, you know, other insects eat those insects and then the, the birds and the, the small mammals and the amphibians and the reptiles and everything just building on that through the different trophic levels and transfer of energy. And the broader that basis of plants at the bottom is, the, the healthier that whole ecosystem is. Definitely. And the, the health of that ecosystem translates to clean air and, and clean water and biological diversity. And, and those things are not only important from a standpoint of a healthy earth and, and a healthy ecosystems around us, but those things also translate to human health, too. And so thinking about it from a big-picture perspective... I think native plants are just so important to think about at that level right out the gate. Then you can think about 
what makes us happy? What do we love uh, in our lives and what keeps us uh, thriving and engaged? And I know for me, green space and uh, being able to be outside and enjoy the plants and the animals around me. And truthfully, the more of that green space, the more diversity I see in that green space, the, the happier I am as, as a person that's interacting on this landscape with our environment. And, uh, you know, I've spent a, a lifetime and a career kind of thinking about those things, so maybe it's a little bit more <laughs> relevant uh, in my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think just from a, a healthy living standpoint, we are so interconnected with our the natural world around us and you know it helps provide us with our with our basic essentials with our food our water our air our all those things and so we are very much tied to that uh, that native ecosystem and at the base of that is native plants i love it that was beautiful oh i see i feel like some people think that plants are boring I do not. I love plants. Anyone that has ever talked to me has probably figured that out. And I love bugs, too. So, And plants and bugs are so closely intertwined. Um, you can't talk about plants without talking to bu- about bugs or vice versa. Um, but, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, it really does all start with plants. And our native plants are so important to the balance of our ecosystems. And, yeah. You did it. You, you said it way more eloquently than I ever could, but <laughs> you're, you're you, totally we right. We both know that we like to talk about these things. But. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, yeah. And one of the things that, because I've, I've done native plant gardens in the past, um, I did a, a presentation, I guess, for our volunteers yesterday about native plants. And that was definitely something that, you know, I talked with them a lot, a lot about because I do get pushback sometimes from the public Um, when I talk about plants and things like that and they're like okay but I already have zinnias in my garden and you know I see butterflies all the time so obviously my garden is just fine and I don't need to change it and there's no way this could possibly be better and I'm like well I'm really glad that you have butterflies but you know I've seen firsthand and maybe maybe that's part of it maybe it's experience with native gardens that really gets you excited about them But I've seen firsthand comparing, you know, more traditional landscapes, usually with European plants um, versus using native plants. And the insect diversity at those gardens is completely different. And with that insect diversity comes, you know, birds and small mammals and all those other things. You can make like a whole little habitat in your backyard. And I've seen gardens as small as like five foot square get monarch caterpillars on them and have you know then kids can watch the whole you know life cycle and it's just really exciting and it's it's impressive what even a really tiny garden can accomplish in my opinion absolutely i could not agree more (laughs) (laughs) you're you're definitely a uh an advocate uh and a very good one for uh, native plant gardening uh as well and that's what that's what we're trying to promote. Mm-hmm. Not only are these are we we're trying to conserve the existing native ecosystems that mm-hmm. are out there, and, and and you know in Kansas where we're located, it we're lucky to still have a lot of the original prairie still available close by to be able to visit and see the, these examples of native ecosystems that have been in place for for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think one of the things that is 
the most interesting challenges is trying to recreate and uh, establish those native kinds of elements into the urban infrastructure, you know, into into cities and towns and have those be the the skin and and the aesthetics of the of the places we live, the places yeah. we that are our homes, the places where we go to school, the places where we worship, the the businesses that we go to. And the more examples of you see of that, the the um, the more accepted and appreciated it can be. And it's uh you know, we're, we've adopted some of this uh, English formal gardening landscape, you know, that's been very influential in, in landscape architecture circles. And, you know, it's sort of driven a lot of, of the, the ideals and aesthetics that we have in landscaping in the U.S. today. Uh, you know, and at the basis of that is this, uh, this green lawn. Uh, you know, it, it, is, it is a green space. It, it, it does contribute to... Uh, a cooling and uh, you know some elements of yes. recreation and being able to have that that turf grass component isn't something that we should completely do away with because there is a place for it but I think that it's completely overused uh, too and if we can start thinking about incorporating more native elements of vegetation and landscaping into some of those then we have more interesting places aesthetically we have more biological diversity being attracted to these places, and we have less resource use as well from a standpoint of water and fertilizer, and and that water element being a, a really important one, I think. Like say in Kansas in particular, you know, 85, I, I think it was 85% of our water goes to agriculture in the state, and, mm-hmm. and included in that uh, are the um, you know, the, one of the biggest monocultures that we humans uh, promote, and that's green lawns. And oftentimes we do that with a, with a non-native cool season grass that requires a great deal of input of water and fertilizer to keep it as that non-native cool season grass monoculture that we have there. And yeah. so it, uh, um, it, uh, it comes with a lot of education to try to shift the thinking along those lines, uh, but uh, there are so many valid and wonderful and very um, engaging and rewarding reasons for, for trying to promote more native landscaping in the areas that surround us. Absolutely. And I, I really like that you brought up, you know, the more that we see it in public places, especially the more, you know, accepted and more normal it becomes and people are willing to kind of take that leap in their own gardens or at their own schools or businesses and things like that. And it is true. Whenever you see like a native landscaped yard or um, business, like they stand out, they look completely different. Um, Not only because, you know, there's different textures and heights and things like that than a more traditional landscape, but just because the plants are different and, you know, there's stuff that people think are exotic, but actually it's native. It's stuff that used to be here, you know, years and years ago, but they aren't anymore. And yeah, I, I really like that. That's that's cool. It's a cool way of thinking about it. And I kind of wanted to share just a really quick story of uh, 
we were talking about, you know, reverting prairies and trying to kind of restore grasslands and things like that. And at the Great Plains Nature Center, we are kind of surrounded by Chisholm Creek Park and we do have prairies here and they're absolutely beautiful if you've never seen them. And um, if you can do a tick check afterwards, which is highly recommended, um, you know, go tromping through the middle of that prairie and try to find some like weird plants out there because there's there's a lot of wildflowers and grasses and things that only really grow out in the middle of the prairies and you're, you're not going to find them along the edge of the trail and we totally like support tromping through the prairie that's it's a great educational experience so <laughs> and um, when I worked on McConnell Air Force Base they also had a restored prairie plot it wasn't very big but there used to be a building it was the 1090 building so it was the 1090 prairie plot and Essentially, all they did was they got rid of the building and then they just kind of let it go wild. And there was a little bit of reseeding done, but there was a lot of plants um, like like Gara that came up without that being in the seeding mix. So those plants were just in the ground, in the seed bank, waiting for that building to go away so that they could bloom once again. And like it was just like mind blowing. Like there's so many plants that popped up that were not planted there. They just, they were just there naturally. And uh, it's so cool. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Native ecosystems can be so resilient. Yes. You know, the, the leftover rootstock or the leftover seed bank Mm -hmm. that was in place. And sometimes it can be for, for decades that those haven't been in place, uh, can still survive and, be able to come back from that. Now, that's not always the case, and it just depends, yeah. depends on the amount of disturbance in a particular location. Uh, but uh, it is it is really interesting to see the the, the restoration that can happen naturally. Uh, but it's also very engaging for people to interact with that process. You know, there are Definitely. very few places left in our country, uh, for sure, and and we still have some of the most untouched natural areas uh in the world uh with uh you know regard to some of our parks and those kinds of uh of resources but for areas that that have been disturbed you know engaging people in that ecological restoration process i think is very powerful and and again that comes back to the ideals of the, the land ethic and elder leopold and you know what he talked about in a Sam County Almanac of how we engage with the landscape, and that can be a, a very a powerful process. And it is one that you know relies on empathy for the land and stewardship, and being able to to be aware of of the, the natural elements around us. The you know like what I talked about the air, the water, the the the. Uh, the species of, of wildlife and plants and uh, considering the the land as a quote-unquote natural part of this community of this interaction between people and and the natural world is as as a very important one and one that not only has intrinsic value to us but if you stop and think about economic value there are many elements of, of economic benefits too when we think about uh, the importance of of the land around us absolutely yeah sometimes you know 
like you said, it definitely has intrinsic value, but if someone's trying to pitch a native garden or restoring a prairie or what have you, a lot of times it does come down to money and they're looking at that big initial cost estimate and it can be a little scary, but you know, ultimately it's, it's pretty worth it. But. Mm. And, and from the economic standpoint, I'm, you know, thinking about the, uh, the impacts the environmental impacts that come with not having some of those conservation elements in place. You know, the the cost of cleaning air and cleaning water and soil erosion and mm-hmm. loss of species diversity, all these things, we don't necessarily provide economic cost to those those detriments. And if we would, I think we would place a lot more value on the care of of natural systems around us. Uh, I think it was an environmental studies class that talked about negative externalities, you know, and what the, the negative environmental impacts are of some of our actions as humans. And, if, you know, placing a dollar value on those impacts can, can help us understand more of the importance of them sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. So we've, we've talked about a lot of kind of big picture things. Let's try to scale it down just a little bit. How can the individual person make a difference, especially in regards to native gardens? What kind of tips and tricks do you have for our lovely listeners for starting their own garden? Where should they get seeds? Should they even do seeds? Should they do plugs, a mixture? What kinds of plants? And we'll specifically talk about Kansas, but a lot of this can be kind of extrapolated to wherever you're listening from. Yes, I am very excited about this topic of trying to figure out how to restore natural vegetation, native vegetation to a place. And whether it's a small scale of like, you know, just small little gardens around the places that we live and work, or whether Mm -hmm. it's a larger area that we're talking about, you know, more than uh, say a thousand square feet or up to acreage, uh, there are many ways that you can go about it and thinking about what we what I would call you know uh, native landscape restoration or ecological restoration mm-hmm. or restoration gardening lots of different ways you can look at it but let's uh, let's start with a little bigger picture first you know okay. my background in ecological restoration we spend a lot of time thinking about large acreages and how you can incorporate uh, um, restoration of, say, in Kansas, it would be prairie, mostly. And uh, you start with a a seed mix many times, and there are some great seed nurseries out there. We we don't have a lot of seed nurseries in Kansas. Mm -hmm. We're starting to get some more examples of that. The upper Midwest uh, in Iowa and Illinois and Wisconsin and Minnesota have a, a lot of great examples of some seed nurseries that, that can provide the seed mixes we need to restore prairie Kansas. Mm-hmm. And so contacting one of those uh, those native seed nurseries is a good way to start. And you come up with, you know, the, the basic things you need to know are the square footage of the area you're trying to restore or acreage on, in the case of larger examples. And what you're trying to achieve as a goal of with that ecological restoration. It may be a, you know, a, a simple restoration plan of just trying to create grasses 
which can be done very easily and probably with the least amount of money because grasses are easy to grow and therefore the seed is is cheaper Mm -hmm. from a supply and demand standpoint. Uh, But if you're interested in more biological diversity and more wildflowers or forbs into that mix, then then you need to think about some of the many different, you know, hundreds of species of of wildflowers that you can add to those, you know, say dozens of species of grasses when you think about the the native prairie that we're trying to emulate. So that's sort of the 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 big picture ecological restoration perspective mm-hmm. of doing lots of diversity and maybe trying to emulate the model prairie system. Let's think of it as a, of a spectrum of ecological restoration. That's the, the most wild and most native and the most uh, um, trying to establish biological diversity as much as possible with that mm-hmm. perspective. And you can manage those pretty easily with just a, you start with a, a little bit of site preparation, making sure that you have, uh, you know, either the the existing vegetation under control, uh, or sometimes you have a, a cultivated site and you can just put that seed out there in a a, a mix that you distribute, uh, in a in a broadcasting fashion. And usually that happens sometimes in the in the winter, uh, when the you're exposing the seed to the natural. Uh, elements of uh, cold, wet stratification that those seeds need to germinate. And then you just basically watch it grow. And you do a little bit of management of with trying to control some of maybe invading trees and other mm-hmm. weeds, and you do that management with a mower uh, until you get enough grass that can carry fire, which is a natural disturbance element in these prairie ecosystems, and then you can manage it with a combination of fire and mowing. And the mowing can oftentimes simulate the grazing that would have been there. So what mm-hmm. you're trying to do, restore that native ecosystem with the seeds that would have been there, and then trying to simulate some of the the, the maintenance or management uh, approaches like fire and grazing in that in that big picture ecological restoration scenario. Mm-hmm. So now let's then veer towards the other end of the spectrum, which would be the the more manicured gardening component of of ecological restoration, or you can call uh, native gardening uh, that we do around our landscapes, and that's what we probably spend most of our time promoting here at Dick Arboretum of the Plains, uh, which is a, you know, a big part of our mission statement in cultivating transformative relationships between people and the land, because that land is oftentimes in the places that we, where we live and we spend most of our time. And so doing so in, in native garden elements can be, can be very powerful. And that, that small-scale gardening, uh, that other end of the spectrum, can be as small as just a small little plot of land, let's say, you know, 10 by 10 feet mm-hmm. or, or even smaller. And oftentimes as we figure out how to become uh, good native plant gardeners, starting small is so important uh, because we need to practice these activities of, of planting and weeding and monitoring and enjoying uh, these, these, uh, these gardens. Because really when it comes down to it, if you don't enjoy the garden, you're not going to keep doing it. So yes. that's something that we talk about a lot is that you need to take the time to experience and enjoy these. You know, enjoy the plants that are that are growing and are flowering and setting seed and, and completing their life cycles there. And enjoy the, the wildlife that those plants attract. You know, the 
uh, from the insects to the birds to the, the small mammals, the reptiles, amphibians, all those different things, you know, that, that are attracted to these native plant gardens. And, and you really can attract a lot of those, those elements to these gardens. And so that process is, is a regular ritual that we do throughout the growing season. And, you know, when it starts in that early spring, when you see those first plants coming up and you see those first flowers, you know, whether it's a little prairie wildflower or maybe you have some shaded areas where you've been doing some little woodland gardening or something and getting out there and enjoying it. And and if you see some of the maintenance aspects of these small gardens, which include, you know, some weeding, because we want to just see certain plants grow there. We don't mm-hmm. want the, the annuals and non-native species that are invading in there to kind of take over and overwhelm the planting. So it takes some hand weeding, and that weeding effort can be aided by mulch and, you know, some, some other tools that, that reduce the, some of the amount of weeding that we need to do. And if we're out there and we're doing some of those things on a regular basis, then we're in the process of not only are we maintaining those, but we're out there, we're observing them with high repetition and we're learning more about the, the names of those plants and, and, you know, when they come up in the season and when they flower and when they set seed and when they attract certain animals to them. And, And you see those things happen on a regular basis. It becomes a positive feedback loop where we, we want to get out there more. We want to garden more. We want to weed more because there's a, there's a reward that we get from interacting with those gardens in that, in that space. And it can be infectious. You know, your neighbors can see that, Hey, that looks pretty nice. And wow, Mm -hmm. what are those birds that are being attracted here? And, and on and on. So it's something that I live, eat, sleep, breathe. So it's, it's <laughs> easy for me to be an advocate for it, but it, it's not something that just happens overnight. It, it takes a, a process of repetition and dedication, and it's always important to start small. So, uh, But that is sort of talking a little bit about the other end of that, mm-hmm. that native plant restoration spectrum. So let me know what how where I should go from there I have some <laughs> thoughts but I'll let I'll let you talk for a moment. okay no that, that was great I love it and I think that's really important like being out in the garden is is so important and people realizing that yes there is a little bit of maintenance here involved um I do try to whenever I talk about native plants with people I you know, tote about how you won't have to water it hardly ever, except for when you're first establishing the plants. And I talk them up really exciting. You'll see more bugs and you'll see more birds and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it's it's like any other garden. You will have to do a little bit of maintenance in it. But I really like your perspective of that maintenance will just make you love it more and the positive feedback loop. Would you say that native gardening is as addictive as social media (laughs) i would like to say well let's say this um the time that i spend on social media uh oftentimes uh, when i'm finished with that you you can squirrel away easily 15 minutes half hour hour and you realize wow i just spent a lot of time uh there sometimes comes with regret i rarely ever regret the time spent outside gardening (laughs) and and native landscaping, you know, so uh, it is something that is, it is restorative for me as well. It's, it's, can be seen as good exercise, get some sunshine, fresh air, Mm -hmm. Uh, it's an education uh, always. And so, 
Yeah, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> so yes is your final answer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> and 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 you talked. You you mentioned the connection with insects, and, yes. and we've both been talking about that as well. I think that that is something too. You know, the more time we spend in these gardens, and we have an appreciation for. Uh, you know, some names with the faces of these mm-hmm. plants that we're seeing out there. And as we we increase our vocabulary of the number of native uh, plants that are out there, and we can recognize them at different times of, of the year, different seasons, and how they, you know, have value and benefit and aesthetic uh, appeal, um, not just when they're flowering, but mm-hmm. when they, you know, are setting seed, when they're attracting, you know, a host insects or pollinators or, you know, and then we start to put, you know, names to the faces of of some of the insects that are out there and some of the insects that get eaten or, you know, some of the the, the animals that eat those insects and on and on. And so the more you increase your, your appreciation and the kind of inventory of, of what's happening in that space out there, the, the more appealing it, it is to spend time there. And so we mentioned, or you mentioned before, you know, seeing monarchs. And yeah. uh, one of the things that we're promoting right now through our plant sales that's going on is these these pollinator kits. And in those pollinator kits, we include milkweeds. And one of the reasons we try to incorporate milkweeds always is because one of the species that is attracted to those milkweeds is one of our societal favorites, uh, the monarch butterfly. And so it's this little charismatic insect that we would be just really sad if that insect wasn't on the landscape anymore and Mm -hmm. out there brightening our day, fluttering through in the spring and in the fall and, you know, laying its eggs and having those monarch caterpillars out there and you know, just on and on. Absolutely. And with the loss, you know, one of the things that's enriching about this process of being out there and enjoying these landscapes is understanding that important relationship that happens between the host plant of the milkweed and the migrating monarch butterfly that goes from Mexico to Canada and back in that cycle. It's a, a wonderful migration cycle every single year. And you know, the the flyway or one of the major flyaways for, for the monarch butterfly comes right through the, the Great Plains in the Midwest. And yep. why is that natural cycle happening through here, that, that cool element of migration? Well, it's because the, the monarch relies on milkweed. And there are dozens of species of milkweed that were an original element of the, of the prairie landscape. And so as we've as we destroy some of the prairie and we convert the prairie to other land uses, along with that loss goes the loss of milkweed. And, mm-hmm. you know, in examples like, you know, conversion to agriculture, that is a, a, a big one of the land use changes we see throughout the Great Plains in the Midwest. And as we become more effective at killing off the, the milkweed in our agricultural uh, systems and, uh, you know, a lot having to do with uh, with the advent of no-till, and there are some you know, environmental benefits to to no-till from uh, uh, the soil holding component, and you know, some of the water quality issues. One of the things we've been very good at is killing the weeds with our with our no-till mm-hmm. uh, agricultural processes, and some of those 
quote-unquote weeds are, are milkweed. And so the loss of milkweed has uh, been correlated with a, a loss of monarch butterflies that rely on that host plant to complete its life cycle. And, and the monarch butterfly will go through many generations, three, four generations in that migration north and south. And so to complete that life cycle, the, the milkweed has to be in place. So that's a, a, a long story to say that some of the, the interesting relationships that we see between the, the plants and the animals that they host in these natural ecosystems around us. Uh, one of those great stories that we that we latch on to a lot in in this business of restoring native plants and native ecosystems is the relationship between milkweed and the monarch butterfly. Yes. So I've elaborated on that a lot, but uh, <laughs> I think that's one of those powerful stories among many. There, you know, every insect out there has a host plant uh, that it needs to lay its eggs and uh, to complete its life cycle. And, and then there are also, you know, the, the pollinators that are needing the, the food to, as in their adult stages, that, that sweet nectar that they come, that they're looking to these flowers for. And so, you know, between those host plants and between the, the pollinators looking for nectar, there's a great interaction that happens on so many levels between the plants and the animals that, that they attract. And the more diversity in plants you have on one side, the, the more the correlation of, of animal but diversity biological diversity you're going to attract to that landscape as well yeah i think like you said the monarch is very charismatic but i think that maybe people don't really think about how you know every single insect out there that relies on plants in their larval stage they tend to have you know a family of plants if maybe even only a couple species of plants that they have to have otherwise you know that butterfly that whatever is going to go extinct like it, it has to have that host plant and i think maybe people don't really think about that so while it's all great to you know plant milkweed for monarchs it's it's good to kind of think about some of those other plants as well um one of my favorite kind of things to tell people is about how it's not just monarchs that use milkweed uh one of my favorite moths in the entire world is the cycnia moth the unexpected cycnia and they have the most adorable little larvae they're like bright orange and they have like black like bangs and they're amazing and i just love them um and the first time i saw one on monarch or, or on milkweed sorry uh i was i was very surprised i was like oh i was out here looking for monarch caterpillars what the heck is this little guy he's so cute and like i it took me a while to id it because nobody talks about them and that's i mean there's plenty of other insects out there to get overlooked but i feel like the cycnia moth is 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 just a shame to overlook <laughs> and when they're adults they're very tiny and they're pretty much just white with a little bit of orange on the edge of their wing so they're not super exciting like the monarch is so i get it but it is it is good to kind of think about you know all insects and all the different kinds of plants that we could be planting to help them. Like I know little blue stem and some other grasses are actually host plants to several different species of butterflies and especially skippers I believe use a lot of grasses as host plants and that's you know most people don't think of grass as being a host plant for anything maybe cover or something like that but not a host plant so I think that's just really really cool. Oh, definitely. I, you're just you're touching so well on the the, the elements that that make 
native gardening interesting. And, you know, those repeated stories that you see, those connections between the plants and the animals. And the more mm-hmm. time you spend doing this, the more of those connections you learn about, like that moth. And there, you know, there are so many others, you know. Uh, like you talked about the, the skippers and the grasses being such an important one. And, you know, skippers are kind of a hard-to-identify group of butterflies. But once <laughs> yes. you spend time with them and you start to see all the different kinds of skippers that are out there, you can appreciate, oh, yes, this one comes available this time of the year. And, oh, and then later you see this skipper coming on. And then it's, you know, the same with other butterflies and other insects, you know, like the, the black swallowtails being attracted yes. to plants in the parsley family. So let's plant uh, golden alexanders as, as an example of that or you know um, they're just I I won't go into all the all the different (laughs) examples but uh, there are so many of them and uh, and that's just part of that rich process of interacting uh, with the landscape and the non-native plants that we talked mm-hmm. about, you know, like say the annuals and the, the European or the Asian species that we bring into our landscape, you know, they can provide some aesthetic value and Definitely. they're interesting to, to look at and they will attract pollinators from a flowering perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's kind of like the story stops there, you know, and if you think about more of the, the native plants and the the insects and the wildlife that are have been connected to those plants for for eons, you know, that have evolved with those plants. It's it's a much richer story when you think about gardening with with native plants. And you know, somebody that tells that story well is uh, Doug Tallamy, the, the Bringing Nature Home is his mm, book yes. where he talks about it. He's in the northeastern United States, so he references a a, a bird that's not native to to Kansas, but like a. Well, whatever that chickadee, I think mm-hmm. very related to our native black cap chickadee here in Kansas, uh, as an example, that the, the chickadee needs uh, to rear a, a clutch of, of young and, and to feed those, those young once they hatch, they, they feed entirely on insects. Yes. And in order for that chickadee to be able to sustain the number of insects, and I think he comes up with a number, I think 5,000 insects that mm-hmm. it takes to 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 feed and, and fledge a, a nest of, of young chickadees, uh, it, it takes a lot of insects, and, and those parents are busily feeding those young, and they can't travel far. You know, the efficiency of it, the, the, the closer those insects are, the more successful in uh, efficient that that family of chickadees will be in having success. And so being able to have those native plants that attract all those native insects uh, to that location is such an important connection that we just, it's not something that we understand until we stop and think about this, this very intricate and um, diverse web of, of this ecosystem around us and the important roles that native plants play in supporting that wildlife that we also enjoy seeing. Absolutely. Yeah, that is a really, really good point. And I have seen in native gardens that I've tended, I've seen birds, uh, you know, hopping around gathering insects and they have a little baby walking right behind it and they're feeding the baby as they go. And, and anytime I'm in a native garden, like it's almost impossible to even weed because there's so many insects just everywhere. I'm like, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm probably ruining all your homes. Get on the plants instead of like in the grass that's growing up here. Like, come on. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. 
love it. Well, and there's some of, so there's some of those great stories of examples of those mm-hmm. those animals that are that are attracted. But you know, and for some, you know, I think I've been probably you know native landscaping around my home for um, 15 years plus. Yeah. And every year there's so many things, new things that I learn or come across that I've never seen before. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't long ago that massive wasp fell on my picnic table as I was sitting there and freaked out originally but then I saw that it it was attached to a cicada that it was killing and eventually watched that cicada killer it's called it's a it's a large wasp yes uh, drag cicada into its nest that it could hatch its young into yep I thought wow (laughs) or you know being able to put up a bat house and and attract uh, big brown bats to my landscape and enjoy uh, seeing those bats that I had never any concept of understanding before that, wow, we can attract bats in Kansas? You know, <laughs> that, that's crazy. I never would have thought that. Or, you know, seeing a, a, a skink, this 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 little, uh, you know, creature that's about, oh, is it like six to eight inches long that uh-huh. I've never seen in my landscape. And, uh, you know, great plain skink, I learned that it was. And it turns out that they like to eat insects, and the more native vegetation you have, the more insects you have, the more likelihood you're going to get something like a great plain skink in your yard. You know, so uh, just those kind of things. It's just an ongoing education. And the the more time you're at it, the the more you can learn and, and appreciate. Yes, yes, yes. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so... I think I kind of want to just quick fire some questions at you, if that's okay. 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 Yeah. Let me think for a second. Number one, top five plants you like using in a garden. Just like a moderate sized garden, nothing too crazy. Go. Mm, Top five plants. And why? And why? Why do you like that plant for gardening specifically? Yes. Okay. Uh, let's let's go with my probably number one favorite would be butterfly milkweed. Mm, yes, butterfly milkweed is a host plant for monarchs that and we, as we talked about. It is one of the few orange plants you see in the landscape, and it blooms during uh, what is a hotter time of the year when not a lot of other things may be blooming as yes. well. So butterfly milkweed's uh, probably one of the top ones. Uh, there's another one that blooms later in the summer. It's uh, Coneflower, mm-hmm. Echinacea angustifolia would be one of the native species. There'd be Echinacea pallida. There is Echinacea paradoxo, which is a, a yellow purple coneflower, mm. a paradox of the typical purple coneflower. Uh, those would be some of the species that would be native to central Kansas and eastern Kansas, and it's just a lovely plant. It uh, it uh, has an herbal medicinal value when we think about values to humans as well. Mm-hmm. It is one of the the most powerful herbal medicinal plants in the prairie. It has uh, seeds and roots that carry compounds that can help have a deadening component of like making your teeth go numb or <laughs> uh, boosting your immune system. And, and I love doing that with kids where we chew on the seeds of the roots and make your teeth go numb for a mm-hmm. little bit. And it had, you know, uh, significance for early settlers and indigenous people uh, too, as a as a medicinal plant on the prairie. Oh, let's go later into the summer. The purple liatris, Kansas uh, yes. gay feather, blazing star. There are a number of species liatris. Uh, 
punctata would be one of the native species. Lytris aspera a little later in the summer. Lytris pycnostachia would be a, an eastern Kansas option. Those are all great lytris uh, that would be uh, in that element. Let's uh, let's not forget about grasses. So mm-hmm. you talked about the attraction that uh, they have for uh, skippers as a host plant, but they are also provide uh, an aesthetic texture uh, in ecological restorations on large scale. They're the vector that helps carry fire. Yes. Um, they're just, uh, they have a, a reddish, uh, let, let's go with little blue stem as an example of, mm-hmm. of a native prairie grass. It's our, it's our, as a symbol for Kansas, it is the, the native grass of Kansas. It is the only grass that exists in every single county in the state. And uh, Kansas Native Plant Society has helped our state adopt that as, as that, that Kansas uh, symbol of native grass. And uh, it turns red in the fall. It's greenish blue during the summer. It it catches moisture and snow and ice in great ways during the winter. Mm-hmm. It's just a, a lovely plant. Boy, that's four. And let's go. Let's give a nod to some of the shady elements in our yard <laughs> as well. And let's let's choose. Let's say golden Alexander. I guess would be a, another one. That's one of those plants in the, the parsley family. It's a host for the black swallowtail. Mm-hmm. It uh, it has an interesting uh, green texture and yellow flowers in the spring, and then uh, interesting seed heads later on in the in the year. And uh, it's always fun to see those black swallowtail caterpillars on it. Later. Yes, those would be. Let's go. Let's go with those five. Hard to choose those uh, <laughs> over over others because there are so many great ones. But yes. let's start with those. I love it. I love it. And yeah, those black swallowtail larvae—they are so so fun. Um, I know people send us messages like all summer long. They're like, "What is this weird thing on my dill or my carrots or whatever?" All of their you know vegetables that they're planting in their garden always end up getting black swallowtail larvae. And sometimes we will end up taking them at the nature center and we'll keep them up on the front desk and let people look at them and we'll rear them to adulthood. Um, but usually when I tell people about them and I tell them you know some fun facts like how if you tickle their back, they will shoot out this crazy orange, almost gooey antenna called an osmodium and try to headbutt you with it and it smells really really bad (laughs) like (laughs) i love telling people that and they get so excited and they're like oh that's pretty cool i'll have to i'll have to show my kid or my grandkid or whatever and like it's they're really really cool caterpillars and i love their stripes and their colors they're just really fun (laughs) that's great um but okay so another question for you you touched a little bit on shade plants with the golden Alexandra. What are maybe like three other shade plants that you would recommend and maybe like part shade to shade? Yeah. Uh, let's see. That's uh, a hard place to garden sometimes. Yeah. There are a number of species that, and if you think about the connection to sort you know, of eastern Kansas, um, oak hickory woodlands that mm-hmm. would have existed naturally in, in eastern Kansas, we can adopt some of the lessons learned in those ecosystems to our central Kansas uh, urban areas that mm-hmm. do have a lot of shade in them. You know, we plant trees in our urban areas. We have lots of structures that cast shade on the landscape. So, you know, many of the areas that we try to landscape in around our homes do include lots of shade that, that we have added to the landscape. It's not that open, sunny, hot, dry prairie uh, for all the areas. And so there are landscaping examples. Uh, 
so we think about the the understory woodland species that would be examples there. So uh, I think to the spring woodland kit that we've been promoting through our plant sale, mm-hmm. I'll just go through through some of those species. There's a um, an early blooming ground cover spreader called wild ginger that mm, yes. has a, a root that that smells like uh, like ginger once disturbed, and it's probably better known for its for its vegetation, its heart shaped leaves that mm-hmm. spread and do well in shady areas. Uh, in contrast to that, another species is the woodland phlox, uh, a species that also is a, a, a creeping spreader that uh, uh, right now during this time of the year is just stunning in its, uh, its bluish purple flowers yes. that it creates. And uh, it is a, a pollination or is a nectar source for some of the early, you know, animals are out there. The like the hummingbirds are starting to migrate through right now, and it, they can be attracted to woodland flocks uh, in that kind of situation. A golden ragwort is a, a Senecio genus that is a yellow flower. A great contrast to the, the woodland flocks that's blooming right now, and that stunning combination of uh, mm-hmm. purple and yellow is a, is a really nice one, and it's in the kind of the sunflower family, but that ragwort uh, does have a, a, a stunning yellow flower, and it also has a creeping spreading component. Something like uh, wild geranium, is another one, and uh, a little bit taller, purple flower, has an interesting uh, seed dispersal mechanism to where if it's pollinated, the uh, seeds are catapulted away by a little spring-like mechanism (laughs) on the seed head that is fun to disturb and see those seeds shoot out. Uh, Columbine is a a blooming species that is adapted from kind of woodland areas, and there are many different uh, sort of native cultivars that provide different colors. Uh, One of them that I like to promote is a a, a pink version that was actually discovered by the Dick Arboretum in Marion County, and uh, Jolito Seed took and started propagating that and spreading those seeds under under the name for us. and then there's a, the grass-like plants. There are, there are a couple of different grasses. Sea oats or river oats would be one uh, that can spread in shady areas. A bottle brush grass would be another. And then there's a, 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 a grass-like plant called the, the sedges group. Uh, many of the sedges like their, uh, their feet wet, but there are also some dry woodland sedges like uh, uh, Carex pennsylvanica, Pennsylvania sedge would be an example, where uh, these are little little grass-like short plants that do well in shade and have a nice grass-like texture with interesting little seed heads. And so those would be some, some shade-loving species that I would be a big promoter of. And, you know, like some of the, the sun-loving ones that I talked about in that in the open area just a little bit ago, some mm-hmm. of these spring woodland ones, we, we've kind of tried to organize some of those as kits to promote uh, through our plant sale. So that's one of the mechanisms we're doing now to try to encourage people to appreciate uh, landscaping with different groupings of plants, whether it's sun or, or shade. Yeah. And to our listeners, if you've never been out to the plant sale, it is absolutely amazing. Just, at least for Kansas, I'm pretty sure it's probably the biggest selection of native plants that you're going to find. Pretty good prices, great, lovely, nice, friendly people to help you out. <laughs> so this year, you're doing it online, correctly? Do you mind kind of breaking that down for people, how that's going to work? Because normally you Absolutely. do open the greenhouses normally and kind of let people come in and wander around. But since it's online, it's a little different. Yeah, 
due to this is an unusual year, but mm-hmm. uh, we are still um, trying to get plans say, into people's hands and do so in, in a safe way with social distancing and, mm-hmm. and no contact. So part of that process is to go to our website, uh, dickarboretum.org, D-Y-C-K, arboretum.org, and you'll be instructed there to uh, go to our Contact Us page, and you can submit an order after you re- reviewed our native plant uh, guide, and you can pick the species and tell us how many of each you want, and we'll process that order and get it ready for a curbside pickup. And you can pay online or drop a check in the long-handled fishnet that we'll <laughs> leave for you, uh, those kind of ways. So we're, we're still trying to come up with creative solutions for helping get people uh, plants in, in safe ways during this, this odd time this year. But yeah, that, that's how you can, can still landscape with native plants yeah. this year. That's awesome. I love it. <laughs> and I love the long-handled fishnet. That's great. Um, <laughs> I had something else, but I lost it. Oh, I'm surprised. What do you, what do you, what are your feelings on purple poppy mallow as a garden plant specifically? Oh, purple poppy mallow is a, is a lovely full sun prairie species that that is very low growing mm-hmm. and it has a, 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 a purple, sometimes referred to as wine cup like flower. Mm-hmm. And in full sun, it just produces profuse blooming. It's yes. really lovely. And uh, let's say late May, mid to late May, yep. I think is around that right time. And it produces these interesting seed heads, and it's a good plant to incorporate in kind of low borders of gardens where you don't mind a little bit of that spreading poppy mallow kind of spilling out over a, over a, a rock edge or, or something like that. Yes. And, uh, uh, yeah, I think it's a... It's a, it's a nice plant that to see in the in the short grass prairie, uh, but also a, a, a nice plant to be utilized in native landscapes as well. Full yes. sun. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And in and from a cultural perspective, it's one of those plants that has this this large tuberous root mm-hmm. that you can dig up and uh, cut up and fry like a like a fried potato. <laughs> and I've done that, and it tastes very similar to a potato. Really? Yep. Interesting. That's so fun. I've heard that somehow, like part of the reason why it has the name mallow is because you can almost make like a marshmallow-like substance with the roots or something like that. What? What is, what is, I might be making stuff up. I don't know. That could be true. I hadn't <laughs> heard of that, but uh, I'll go with it. Okay. I like your enthusiasm and your willingness to take my random facts that might not actually be facts. <laughs> Um, awesome. I had, let me think, I had one more question. Yes, go for it. We talked about sun, shade. Oh, okay. So if, for example, you're living in an apartment or maybe you're renting and you don't have a lot of, um, willingness to put a whole bunch of money into a yard that is not yours and will not be moving with you, do you recommend, uh, native plants in containers or in pots and what kind of plants do well in that kind of a setting? Well, that's a good question. I actually had a request this year for uh, somebody with those very needs Mm -hmm. of not having a lot of space to do landscaping, but they wanted to uh, do some container gardening. And I would never think that that would be a a good application for native plants Mm -hmm. at first because 
you know, these plants eventually are what they're doing and, and why they're so well adapted to living in Kansas and, and being successful in Kansas is because they develop these deep 8, 10, 12 foot deep roots that help them survive during hot drought times. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's because of that deep uh, root system uh, to go and get water when it where it needs it. And uh, so obviously you don't have that in a, in a small container. But the reality is, is that the plants that we don't sell at our spring plant sale, we have to keep alive in these small little two inch or four inch or six inch pots uh, yeah. throughout the entire summer. And it just means that we have to water them a lot more frequently <laughs> and oftentimes daily during the summer. And so if you're willing and, and, and we can keep those plants alive just fine in mm-hmm. those cases. But uh, it, it does take more dedication to, uh, to maintain uh, a potted garden in, in doing so in Kansas. Mm-hmm. And it just basically means regular watering. So if you're willing to commit to regular watering, you can have success with establishing and enjoying some of these native, native plants in your landscape. Yeah. And or are, in your in your potted landscape. Yes, say. yes, yes. <laughs> and are there any that maybe you would recommend as or things that you think would do well in a pot? Yeah, I would start with some of the things that are maybe a little shorter lived perennials mm-hmm. that do more of their life cycle quickly uh, mm-hmm. in in after shortly after they're planted. So let's use a uh, uh, species like blanket flower gallardia. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's going to establish those roots quicker and flower quicker and use those seeds. And it may not be as long lived as, as some of the other native perennials, but uh, it, it's going to do a lot of flowering right on. Yeah. Um, I like to think of including uh, a grass in those uh, elements too as sort of a, a central feature mm-hmm. and being able to you know have that that different uh, uh, textural element there as well um, let's see what others uh, could be included in that I'm just going to look at what I was thinking about in this container garden of <laughs> uh, a golden Alexander okay you know back to that one again uh, that one would be a, a quick establisher and be able to do that. And uh, let's not rule out a milkweed. There, one plant that we've been promoting is more of an annual tropical milkweed. So you know we're not always just about native plants. Mm-hmm. We're also interested in plants that are are adaptive uh, to this area as well. And one of those species is is Asclepius curasavica. Uh, I that I've said that wrong. It's called bloodflower, and uh, it's, a, it's a milkweed species uh, of an annual nature that's going to bloom more quickly and more profusely. And it is one of those that the monarchs will also be attracted to to, to lay its eggs on and be able to rear young. Okay. That they it will act as a host plant too. But it is also more of a it's a short-lived annual that is going to flower uh, more profusely. So it could be a good example for one to use in a pot too. Okay. So those are some some examples that come to mind first. I think uh, you could also do a coreopsis mm-hmm. that would uh, do well, a, a hummingbird mint, some of those that, mm-hmm. you know, plants that attract pollinators really well mm-hmm. uh, would be some examples I would think of. Yeah. Something like bee balm, too? Oh, not, bee balm's yeah. a quick establisher. That would be yeah. another great one, yeah. Cool. I've always had this beautiful dream of, like, 
a really big pot just right outside my door with just like a bunch of bee balm in it. And like you leave the house and that's like all you smell because they're a beautiful mint. Yes. <laughs> well, and you've touched on an important element we haven't talked about, too, yeah. is that thinking about the families of plants that mm-hmm. we promote, you know? And so uh, there is the, the mint family, lots of different plants in the mint family that have interesting flowers that, that have a, a symmetry all to them, uh, their own, and, yes. and a seed producing structure and, you know, uncertain. Uh, insects that they'll uh, attract. And then there's also the, you know, the interesting smells that that the mint family brings to us. Or, you know, there are legumes and, and uh, the interesting flowers that come in the legume family. And on and on, we could talk about a lot of different families. But that's an interesting way to think about the, the plants that we choose as well. Yeah, definitely. Cool. I, I lied. I have one more question. This might be a controversial subject, because I know a lot of gardeners one of the like basic tips to gardening is as soon as your flower seeds, you chop off that seed head to make it bloom again. What are what are your feelings on seed heads? Should we keep them? Should we chop them off? I have feelings too, so I'll share mine if they're different from yours. Sure. <laughs> I could be all over the map on this topic. Yeah. Um, many of these seeds can provide food mm-hmm. for birds and small mammals. And so it's not just insects that uh, these animals are looking for when they come to our landscape. So there is that element. And to be able to enjoy, uh, you know, a finch watching them eat sunflower seeds Mm -hmm. or, you know, some of the other, you know, grasses uh, that produce, you know, seeds for small mammals, et cetera. So there is that element that I do like to leave those seeds there. Um, But there's also the consideration of aesthetics. Mm -hmm. Some of these plants will produce seed heads that can look kind of unkempt. And (laughs) uh, it maybe is something that doesn't add to your garden aesthetically for you. Mm -hmm. And so if that's the case, by all means, go ahead and cut those seed heads off. Sometimes you can get a plant to bloom more by cutting those seed heads off. It's Mm -hmm. all about you know, uh, a plant and what it's going to put its resources towards. And if it's not putting its resources towards seed, it may put more energy into flowering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's also the issue of that uh, some of these native wildflowers can be a little bit aggressive yeah. in the amount of seeding that they do. And uh, we like them in one place, but maybe we don't want them all over our garden. And mm-hmm. Many of these, uh, if you do let them go to seed, they will pop up all over and add to your weeding effort, too. So sometimes I'll go ahead and, you know, cut the seeds heads off before they produce lots of seeds so Mm -hmm. that I don't have to be weeding as much of that plant later on in the season. So there are various reasons for why we may or may not choose to cut off the seed heads. And I think it just sort of depends on the particular species. That's fair. That's fair. I like it. Now go ahead with what you were going to say. <laughs> I agree with everything you said. Um, there are definitely, especially if you have something like a homeowner's association breathing down your neck, if you want your garden to look nice, sometimes the seed heads got to go. But another probably not thought of very often reason to keep them, not only is it good food for lots of different animals, but a lot of our ground nesting bees actually use spent flowers for nesting. 
And oh, yeah. yeah, so having those seed heads there, you will actually possibly, not guaranteed, but you might be, be providing a home for some of our native bees that are really struggling right now. You could always do something like a, a bee box or something like that, but I think it's kind of nice just to provide more of a natural home for them. That's one of my biggest reasons why I usually do keep seed heads. I think that they, most of them at least, do look quite beautiful in their own right and they add a lot of texture in the winter as well so keeping them on there you don't just have like you know an empty garden you have all these really interesting and fun textures in the seed heads well said those are important considerations as well (laughs) thank you (laughs) well i think i will let you go because we are now over an hour (laughs) but thank you so much for chatting with me and I will get this edited up just as quick as I can. And you're just a wealth of knowledge as always. And it's always a pleasure chatting with you, Brad. Thanks, Nicole. It is such a pleasure to visit with you about, I know, a topic that's very important to both of us. Yes. I'm impressed that we kept it to close to an hour, honestly. like. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's good. Nice job. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. I tried a little bit, but also it's just really fun to kind of let you just go off on tangents. And And I did do that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And that's totally fine. (laughs) (laughs) That is totally fine. Thank you so, so much. Yeah. So as always, make sure you check out our show notes on gpnc.org slash that's hyphen my hyphen favorite. And thanks so much to our producers, the Great Plains Nature Center. If you enjoy this podcast, please, please, please leave us a review. It doesn't take very much of your time at all. We'll be back in a couple weeks with more favorites because everything's our favorite. Thanks, everybody.